to the Fresh Expressions podcast. I'm Gannon Sims, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Heather Jalad. And guess what? We have a special bonus episode of the podcast for you. Um, it's, uh, and I, I want to tell you the complete collection of videos and audio recordings of the recent Fresh Expressions gathering are available. And this is your chance to hear hours of practical and inspiring talks and workshops from our good friends, uh, practitioners, thinkers like Lynn Sweet, Nona Jones, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, and others. And I'm, and I'm pleased to say that we've got uh, in, in this episode uh, the uh, plenary session, the talk given by uh, Todd Bolsinger um, to share wow. with you. And, and yeah. it's, it's it's a good uh, piece uh, for us, and if you wanna, if you wanna, you know, get this information um, in in toto, you can you can do that by um, getting our FX Connect app, fxconnectus.org, and you can get that app in Google Play or in the um, the App Store. Uh, but as I said, we're gonna offer uh, Bolsinger's a talk uh, as as this bonus uh, episode of the podcast. Oh my goodness. I, um, I, I couldn't get enough. I couldn't write fast enough. I ended up taking lots of, uh, pictures of slides. There were so many truth bombs and I think he named so many things in his presentation that, um, we all felt and maybe could or couldn't articulate, but, uh, what a powerful, powerful present. I'm so excited about what's next. I mean, I know that, you know, uh, I read uh, I read Canoeing the Mountains years ago and um, when it first came out and I read it again in 2020 and it felt like I was reading a book of prophecy. Totally. But, <laughs> but then but then right around that time is when Tempered Resilience came out, which, hello, we all needed a little resilience in the last uh, couple years, to say the least. And and now, really, the 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 thing that 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 he has identified is, in a sense, um, is this crisis of, of formation that uh, has come to light in the you know the apocalypse of of COVID, meaning that you know so many things were already happening, but were revealed, uncovered uh, in full color uh, during during the pandemic, and. Um, and, 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 and he named kind of the underlying conditions, and I'm sure these are going to resonate with a lot of people, and he'll, he'll talk about this in the, in the presentation, but the lack of deep, pervasive discipleship for a persevering church, the lack of community for keeping relational connections and uh, amidst turmoil and change, which, wow, I mean, we are already in the midst of turmoil and change, but many of us, I guess, were unaware until the pandemic. And then the lack of cross-generational engagement, which you and I have talked about, yes. um, that will pass the faith from uh, one generation to the next. And then the the lack of extensive leadership capacity for a distributed church, right? I mean, as, as a pastor, as pastors, all of a sudden we had to do everything because we we had or maybe we had a, a a limited staff and so we were all of a sudden figuring out how do we disciple people how do we continue with worship how do we figure all this stuff out when we can't all be in one place and um and i think that's where fresh expressions really um 
builds an incredible resilience when Mm -hmm. you have the church distributed in so many ways and you're not 100% relying on you know, your Sunday morning worship experience as, as being the be all end all. And then he said the lack of prophetic wisdom for addressing challenges for, for social justice. So that was probably one of my, my, he told amazing stories. I can't wait for everybody to hear those about what this looks like practically and um, the, the gap that is there. And so I think without further ado, let's Turn it over to Todd Bolsinger from the Fresh Expressions Gathering. You're listening to the Fresh Expressions Podcast. Good morning. I have spent the last week in the South, and I have had two dramatic experiences. One, the very first time in my life yesterday, I had a tornado warning. I had never been through that before. I have had earthquakes. I've had fires. Never had a tornado warning. And the other thing was, earlier this week, for the very first time in my life, I went to Cracker Barrel. I'd never been been there either. I don't get it. I don't get it. I, 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 I've been trying. People have been telling me all the time that I, that I should understand it, but I don't, I don't get it. So, um, It is really great to be with all of you here on this very last day of this conference. I love being part of the Fresh Expressions family, even at a distance. I love partnering with Shannon, and the cohorts we do are just rich because the people who come into it um, come in eager to be able to live out that entire Fresh Expression vision of trying to have a fresh expression of church that both gives us opportunities to reach new people and energizes the inherited church at the same time. I just think it is life-giving and lovely and beautiful. Um, This morning, I'm going to do some new stuff. I haven't ever done the material I'm doing today. So I'm doing new stuff, and I'm doing it without a net. So, um, And the reason why is this is actually how I learn my material, is I talk to a group of people. So your job is to listen to me and then later come back and go, you didn't get that. I don't think so. And I go back to the drawing board. Um, so, and back to the drawing board is exactly where I want to start. So in 2019, I was sitting in my little cap, my little condo in, um, I have a little townhouse in Idaho, in the mountains of Idaho, where I do all my writing. And I was working on tempered resilience. And I wanted to have an example of a tempered resilient leader. Like who's the kind of person who would be an exemplar, a person who would lead their church into dramatic missional engagement and would be able to do so without having having to, uh, even facing resistance. And I found this amazing story of these amazing people. And by the time I finished researching the story, I had, I had written over 10,000 words. And I was so excited about it. And then two weeks later, reality set in, and I cut 10,000 words out of my book. <laughs> but I want to tell you the story. In the winter of 1941, in a mountain plateau in France, there was a knock on the door on a snowy night. Magda Trocme, who was the pastor's wife of a little town of French Huguenots who lived in this area, answered the door. In front of her was a German-speaking woman who was haggard and was wearing summer sandals. She invited her in. She let her warm by the fire. She started hearing her story. She was Jewish. It was 1941. The Nazi occupation of France had already happened, and most folks of Jewish descent were trying to find any safe place. She'd come from Germany into France. She had scattered her way around the country. She'd heard from someone that there was a group of Christians in the plateau of France, a little village called La Chambon-sur-Lignon, who were willing to take in Jews. 
And so she knocked at the door and Magda took her in. She found herself in the middle of this moment getting warmed by the fire and then her sandals caught on fire. So Magda went door to door to the neighbors to find her a new pair of shoes. This was significant because not only was she Jewish, but she was German Jewish. This community had taken in other Jews over the last few months, but this was the first immigrant Jew they had taken in. This community of people who had been dedicated to wanting to try to find a way to welcome those who'd come their way now began to ask the question, will there be enough for our own country people if we bring in people from other countries? This entire saga had started back on June 23rd, 1940, when in the... the, Wake of the Nazi occupation when Vichy, when France was ch- split in between Vichy, who were pro-German, and revolutionaries who stayed French. Andre Trocmé had stood before a group of his parishioners with his um, assistant pastor Ed Edward Thies and gave this sermon: "The duty of Christians is to resist the violence directed at our consciences." with the weapons of the spirit. We appeal to all our brothers in Christ to refuse to agree with or cooperate in violence, to love, to forgive, to show kindness to our enemies. That is our duty. But we must do our duty without conceding defeat, without servility, without cowardice. We will resist when our enemies demand that we act in ways that go against the teachings of the gospel. We will resist without fear, without pride, and without hatred. But this moral resistance is not possible without a clean break from the selfishness that for a long time has ruled our lives. This sermon that has now become known as the Weapons of the Spirit sermon became the call to his people to welcome all who would come. They became a sanctuary community and they saved 5,000 Jews from the gas chambers. When the Nazis would knock on the door in the years to come and would ask them, are there any Jews here? They would answer, everybody here is our family. We don't know Jews or Gentiles, we only know people and they are our family. I was taken by this story, as you can imagine. There's even more nuances to it that are overwhelming. Andre Trocme was a pacifist. He couldn't get a real job in Paris. It took this little group of folks up in the mountains to accept him as their pastor because nobody wanted a pacifist pastor in the middle of a war. But he convinced these folks, these French Huguenot uh, Christians, to let them be their pastor. They accepted him in, and they committed together that they would welcome all who would come their way. I was taken by it. I wanted to be able to tell this story. I had watched in seminary a documentary that had been made on this story in the 1980s. I tried to find the documentary online, and I couldn't find it. It How do you not find something on YouTube? And it was weird. I couldn't find it. But so I looked up the documentary maker, and I found that the documentarian actually still lived in Los Angeles. He's now in his 80s. And I reached out to him, and he wrote me back, and he sent me a copy of the documentary that I could watch myself, and I got on the phone to talk with him. See, Pierre Sauvage wrote the story, this documentary because he was born in La Chambone. These are people who saved his parents, and he did an entire documentary about these remarkable people who did this remarkable thing for a Jewish boy like him. 
And so I began to tell, the tell him what I was trying to do in writing a story about exemplary leadership who are resilient even in the face of resistance. And he said to me, hey, you know, um, Andre and Magda Trokme's daughter, Nellie, is still alive. She's 93. It would be great if you talked to her. And so I called her, I emailed her, and I asked if I could talk with her, and she said yes. And so I got on the phone and I called her, and I told her what I was doing. I said, I want to tell a story about your parents. And I want to tell the story about the way in which they led this community of people. And what I really want to know is how they were formed to be such extraordinary, resilient leaders. And she looked at me and she said, you're very romantic about this, aren't you? <laughs> I love my parents, but they weren't that extraordinary. Pierre Savage had said a simple th similar thing. He said that when he met these people in the 1980s, when he wanted to interview them about what they had done, they were all kind of overwhelmed and embarrassed. They said, I don't know what the big deal is. We just lived out our faith. Pierre Savage wrote, they were simply who they were. Millie Trokme looked at me and said to me um, in a way that made me sound like she I wasn't sure what she really, what she believed, but she said, you know, you Christians, you say you're supposed to live out your beliefs. They just lived out their beliefs. Which, read, which left me with this kind of remarkable conundrum. I wanted to tell a story about resilient leadership, and I found myself realizing that there was actually this remarkably different people. She said, aren't all Christians like this? Recently in an article that was written in Plow Magazine, Matthew Peterson, an, article wrote, an author wrote, that leaves the rest of us with the question, talking about Lesh and Bone, how does, it, how, does, how, do we create a how does a community create such a culture as this? What I want to talk to you today is really what for me has become like this amazing challenge, especially in the light of the pandemic. Um, when you talk to people about their deepest disappointment in the church, frankly, friends, most of us would agree that we are not as Christian as we say we are. On, on occasion, we have these amazing stories like the people of Le Chambon or maybe the people like the, uh, like the nickel mines Amish who forgave the boy who shot their daughters and loved the parents of the boy who shot the daughters because they believed that their core belief was that they were to be for, they were forgive no matter what. Or how about the folks of the Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina who went in the courtroom to tell the man who showed up as a white supremacist, listened to their entire Bible study, let the Bible study finish, then pulled out a gun and killed the pastor and all the people there who'd gathered for the Bible study, you know, we welcomed you. We forgive you. Where do you find this kind of extraordinary leadership? And I have to tell me that the question that haunts me over and over and over again is, what does it take to form this group of extraordinary, ordinary people? Pierre Sauvage said that Le Chambon, the people were just simply who they were. Wouldn't it be something if they said that about us? I spend my days working every single day, working on adaptive change. Adaptive change is where you try to take a community of people through transformation so they can address their biggest challenges. 
when they no longer can revert back to uh, their own uh, technical solutions, when they don't have best practices, when you can't use a program or preaching or the pastoral care that we're all so good at to take people forward, when you literally have to lead into the unknown by starting with the idea that you don't know what to do. Adaptive change is the kind of change that is required when you go into uncharted territory, when you go off the map, when you find yourself facing things that you never thought you'd be facing, like, oh, a pandemic and a global threat of global nuclear war all at the same time. Somebody said that we're in 1918, 1929, and 1968 all at the same time that we have a health crisis, an economic crisis, a crisis of social injustice that has led to crisis of political division that has swept right to the middle of our country and most for many of us right in the middle of our pews. Some of the key principles and practices for leading adaptive change are that we have to take people through a process but the bottom line literally is everybody will be changed, especially the leaders. So the question that I've been thinking about over and over and over again comes out of the conversations that I've had since the pandemic. I, like all of you, I had my life disrupted by the pandemic. I went from uh, traveling 100,000 miles a year, going around the country, talking to lots of different people about adaptive change, to all of a sudden on March 13, 2020, my entire world shut down. I had 15 speaking engagements canceled. I, I didn't get on a plane again for 18 months. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, had, I didn't know how do you speak speak to people if you don't speak to people in a place. And over the next two years, I did 170 webinars on Zoom. I would ask people over and over again the same question. What's been revealed in your congregation? What has been seen through the pandemic that you know was there before but has become completely evident? What's the underlying condition, the thing that if you have the opportunity to look at it more clearly than ever, you know we need to address this? Because if we don't address this, not only are we're not talking anymore about whether we survive as a church, we're talking about how do we go from surviving to thriving. And all, the number one thing everybody talked about was the exact same thing that I discovered when I was talking to people about Les Chambon. We have a lack of deep, pervasive discipleship for a persevering church. So this raises the question, what do we do with this biggest, what I think is the biggest crisis of COVID? We have been revealed to not be as Christian as we thought we were. New York Times writer David Brooks wrote an article early in the pandemic where he said most of the people who are my age, I'm 58, or are, uh, grew up with stories of the greatest generation, the people who sacrificed and cared deeply during the, after World War II and the Great Depression. They were known, they were so heroic, we told stories about them. We call them the greatest generation. But he made the point, he said, you know, none of us really grew up tearing stories about the flu of 1918, the flu that probably started in American military bases that we, of course, called the Spanish flu. Because we didn't act so heroically then. I wonder if our grandchildren will even know there was a COVID pandemic in 2020. Because will we talk about the way we acted during this time? There is a crisis of discipleship. What is it about this discipleship moment that is making us pay attention to the way in which we are betraying our witness? 
Let's face it, for most of us, discipleship is broken down into a couple of areas. We, we know that this isn't all that it's supposed to be. But for many of us, discipleship is either about how do we continually train people to continue to give institutional support. Uh, discipleship gets confused with developing people for our church programs. And understand that we need volunteers. We need Sunday school program leaders. We need small group leaders. It's, it, that's a good thing. But we'd all agree that discipleship is more than that, Right. Or discipleship has become a way of giving people individual self-care, helping people find the practices and the things they need to live well, to thrive, to find peace and comfort. Again, hugely important. But we know that it's more than that, right? There's kind of an unchurched formation more and more that's happening. David Brooks and Peter Winter in a recent podcast with David French and Curtis Chang talked about the fact that when people come through an age where all of a sudden things are going their way economically and in in other ways, they start to find themselves needing to find things to war against. And so discipleship now has become downstream from politics. Our political discourse is now forming the way we think about our church membership and our practices and what we do. We are more formed by who we watch on our evening news or what podcasts we listen to or what radio talk show hosts we listen to than we are by the Bibles we read and the sermons we hear, right? I mean, you all know this. Before the pandemic, a deeply committed church member came to church 1.9 times a month. Which means that if you got them every minute of that and you preach a 30-minute sermon, which for us Presbyterians, that's like a really long one, right? (laughs) It means that you basically got about an hour a a month of formation out of a sermon if they only show up for that. They get 12 hours a year. 12 hours a year, most of us do more than that in the content of our favorite political analysts a week. We know from people like Christian Smith and other sociologists that when you ask people what it means to be a Christian today, particularly younger people and the the generation none that we're finding, that they talk deeply about a kind of faith that doesn't even really resemble Christianity very much. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. It's basically a belief that God wants you to be good and happy. And God stays out of your life unless you're bad and sad. (laughs) And if you're bad or if you're sad, God might show up. But otherwise, God stays out of your life and we have a good deal that as long as we're good and happy, well, then he'll leave us alone. And we realize how many people are leaving that kind of faith behind. The time and days that we're in today is asking us some deeper questions. Curtis Chang tells a story in this podcast about a time when his congregation decided that what they would do is because they wanted to follow the the teachings of the scriptures, they would move out of their suburb more into an urban environment. They would try to love, love and live with their neighbors. They didn't just do a fresh expression. They did a whole new fresh thing. And they moved this congregation into this urban neighborhood. And as in his own words, it didn't take... Pretty soon people left the church because this isn't what they signed up for, what they wanted to be part of. It didn't matter that the scriptures in front of them told them that this is what they should do. He said later, we got the message of the gospel right, but our formational method was the same. We kept believing we could form people with a TED Talk followed by a Coldplay concert. And it wasn't enough. 
He asked the question, do we have an inadequate methodology of formation? And most of us, I think, would agree we do. This is, I believe this is the giant adaptive challenge of our time. I believe that as we start to discover what it means to lead in a new day, the question we're going to have to take on is this one. And I do not believe there are any easy answers. I just want to tell you this. Just can I, can I save you a moment? If you come up to me afterwards and want to give me a pamphlet about the discipleship program that's working at your church, I'm going to bless you and I'm not going to take it. <laughs> Because if it works at your church, I think you should keep doing it. But I really believe that what the rest of us need to figure out is what formation looks like in our context, in our disciples, in our tribe, with our liturgies, in our particular locales. Andre Trochme said, to love, to forgive, to show kindness to our enemies, that is our duty. But this moral resistance is not possible without a clean break from the selfishness that for a long time has ruled our lives. This call to profound love for neighbor was coupled with a profound awareness of a need for repentance. Don't you want to be part of a church that brings justice and righteousness back together? We have become the church that is now divided over justice and righteousness. Justice for people, righteousness before God. We've forgotten it's the same Greek word. And it's time for us to think about voices like these. So what do we do? This is the project that I'm working on, the one I invite you to think about alongside with me to go and try these out. This is what we work on in our adaptive church leadership cohorts. This is the place I want to take them. It, it's got this weird, I, I've got like my same addiction that Michael Beck does to diagrams. It looks something like this. Can you get me the next slide that has the diagram? If we take our adaptive challenges, what are the primary challenges facing the congregation that require transformation? I believe that's discipleship. And we take our spiritual practices, the things that will form us, and we start asking, what are the characteristics needed to face this question? We find ourselves in the middle of that Venn diagram with a whole new way of thinking about a rule of life, a set of practices, a way of doing discipleship that is shaped around this challenge and not around whether our institutions grow or our people are happy. So the question I want you to think about is how you would apply adaptive thinking to discipleship. Adaptive thinking requires learning. It starts with a posture of learning. When we ask the question, how might we cultivate a community of deep adaptive change? It starts with, we've got to become learners. We've got to be curious and humble and open to being corrected. We've got to be willing to change our minds and be willing to have our hearts opened to the humility that it needs that we've already heard other people talk about. We've got to be committed to, to facing loss. Adaptive change always requires loss. If you're a canoeer trying to find a water route and you run into the Rocky Mountains like Lewis and Clark did, there comes a moment where you got to drop the canoes. And the hard part about that is if you built those canoes with your bare hands, and if you came on the trip because you're an expert canoeer, now you get to take the thing you built with your bare hands and you get to burn it for firewood and you're no longer an expert canoeer, you're just a dude carrying luggage. And it's painful. Adaptive leadership require, relies on a diversity of perspectives in order to see clearly. It requires the need for Chicagoias in our midst. 
the teenage Native American nursing mother who was at home in this new world, that these white men of privilege literally tutored in the White House needed to learn to listen to her. It reveals competing values that you have to negotiate. It reveals the fact that you're not gonna be able to solve everything with a win-win that's gonna make everybody happy. At this moment, if you think you're on a trip that's about finding a water route, then maybe you're gonna turn around and go home and tell Thomas Jefferson that, hey, there's no water route, pretty big news. People have been looking for it for 300 years. We got a, we got a news flash for you. You got a choice, are you going back? Are you going forward? Many of our churches are right here at this moment. We're right here. We're facing the future. We're facing the Rocky Mountains and the Lemhi Pass, and we're asking ourselves, what are we going to do? Are we about canoeing? Are we about preserving the great tradition of canoeing? Are we passing on canoeing to other people? Are we going to make sure that we make canoeing great again? Or are we gonna go forward exploring into a future where we have to drop things and lose things and move forward? Some of us are gonna say, we just wanna stay here. <laughs> I got a friend of mine who's a pastor in Denver, Colorado. He said, Denver, Colorado was founded by the great people who made their self way, way all the way across the Great Plains, looked up one morning and said, right here, far enough, we're stopping right here. But competing values means you have to make hard choices and it requires resilience in the face of resistance. In his amazing commentary, Lessons in Leadership, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs applies adaptive leadership to the Torah. When people ask me which book I most recommend, I don't give my own, I give this one. Lessons in Leadership by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Read the Pentateuch through the eyes of a rabbi who's talking about how to lead change. Ronald Heifetz writes this, in biblical terms we might ask how a culture of dependency can transform into a culture of widely distributed leadership. How a people enslaved for generations can become a society in which all members are called upon to take responsibility whenever they see fit, whoever they are. So let me ask you a couple of questions I'll put on the screen. I want you to reflect on, and in a moment I'm gonna invite someone to come up who'd be willing to come up and have a conversation with me real time so that you can help me think about this again. Think about these questions. How might we disciple our people to cultivate humility for a community of learning? What would have to change in the way we think about our discipleship to cultivate courage and empathy at the same time to face losses? To cultivate a diversity of perspectives on every issue in every decision so that we can see clearly, because we're not just seeing out of the same frame, the same lens, with the same voices, the same people making decisions, to cultivate resilience in the face of resistance. Think about this, if reflect on this, which of these qualities is most natural for you? Humility, courage, empathy, diversity, is this natural for you? Or which of these qualities is most challenging for you? What do you need to do to be able to cultivate the characteristics needed for congregational transformation? There is ordinary goodness in La Chambon. That's what Matthew Peterson called it. What transpired in La Chambon did not emerge from a single heroic decision, as it did from a culture containing within it a long memory of persecution. They were French reformed Huguenots who had been persecuted by the Catholic Christians of the day. 
a culture in which gathering around scripture was a daily practice, a culture of both ordinary hospitality and stubborn resistance. One last question to think about it. How is ordinary goodness formed? Think about these as lessons from Les Chambon. Think about your own congregation at this moment. What shared experiences have formed your church? They had a culture with a long memory of persecution. What does our long memory tell us about our church? What regular practices are at the center of our church? A culture in which gathering around scripture was a daily practice. I can't do enough of it today, but literally these people, they read the scriptures aloud every day and talked about it so that whenever somebody would come to the door, they had the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. You know what Martin Luther King Jr. required of everybody who wanted to enter in to the civil rights movement? To be committed to the nonviolent direct action of the civil rights movement, you had to meditate on the words of Jesus every day. What regular practices are at the center of your church? And what is the culture at the heart of the church? A culture of ordinary hospitality and stubborn resistance. So with these in front of us, let me ask you, is there anybody who might be willing to just come up and have a conversation with me about the practices of your church and we might explore it together? Anybody want to try that this morning? You would? Come here. We have one, somebody right here. Come, 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 come. On. This is awesome. We need a microphone. You had no idea that I was going to ask you, right? Okay, we're just doing this real time. No, I okay. didn't. Okay, okay, okay. Come here. Good, good, good. Here, here, come right here. Okay. We're going to stand right here. Okay. Okay, so let me ask you. When you hear this, first of all, what's your first response to this? What happens in your gut when you hear this? I want to hide because I'm the director of discipleship, the new director of discipleship at my church. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, we're going to pray for you, Tom, before we're done. Okay, so, t- okay, so tell me, what is it that brought that out? We're a 200-year-old church mm-hmm. that is really struggling to step forward into this time of adaptive change. Yeah. Um, it's a very affluent white church. Mm-hmm. Um, during the pandemic, I wandered around in the church as a new staff member and opened up this cabinet, and there's a book of life in there. And I opened it up, and the membership rolls from when we were founded in 18... 18- 20, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it recites certain names and it gets to a certain point and it says, black boy owned by Dr. So-and-so, black girl. I've been in the church for 15, 18 years and no one ever talked about that. So that's, you know, and then when our new senior pastor started preaching about racial justice and the people came after him, really unsettling. Yeah. Yeah. What are the regular practices at the center of your church? I mean, meanwhile, that is part of the culture that's been underneath it, and yet I'm sure it's been a Christian church doing Christian things. What have been those regular practices? Well, you know, there are people who have been marooned in Bible studies for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... uh, 
And, that, and by and, the way, that's the line they're going to tweet. <laughs> Nothing of mine. It's that one. Don't, don't quote me on one. that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we have very faithful saints, and many of them have done amazing things. We sent missionaries out from our church. They've done amazing things. They're extraordinarily generous. Yeah. And they, you know, they have a missional impulse, but I don't think they know how to express that. And many of them view their theology through their sociology instead of the other way around. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably unconsciously, right? Oh, absolutely unconsciously, because when, the, when they came after the new senior pastor for preaching about racial justice, they accused him of being political. Yeah. And when he was just preaching the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Director of Discipleship, let's just try a little experiment. What would be one thing that you might want to have people do when you go home just to move the needle a bit, a needle into self-awareness? Think about learning, loss, competing values. What's one thing you can imagine doing with a small group of people? A small, we always tell prototypes, right? A prototype is a safe, modest experiment, right? Something small. Well, I can tell you what one of the things we tried is there's a, a nonprofit that's located in Richmond, but led by an interna- internationally recognized expert on reconciliations, Arabon by David Bailey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we, we uh, introduced race class in the kingdom of God to our congregation, which is theologically and sociologically right down the middle of the fairway. Yeah. And I've been accused of many things. Being a theological liberal is not one of them. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we dispersed that into the congregation and had some people, it wasn't compulsory, but we had somebody take it, read through it, and then uh, claim that we were trying to subvert the church with liberal theology. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. Whenever you do an experiment, I don't want you to answer the question, did it work? I want you to answer the question, so what did we learn? I think it was what you just talked about. It revealed some things, um, and it let us know that we were entering into a space that we hadn't entered into before. But I don't, some of these people have been shaped by preaching and teaching that's never mentioned justice before. Yeah, that's actually an interesting thing. I have talked to a number of the pastors that I coach. They will say that because of some of the issues of racial injustice, because of the issues of solidarity, because of a growing desire to do so, they find that they're the first person in the history of their church to ever preach certain biblical texts. And that part of the issue is we haven't read enough scripture, right? No, I I absolutely think that's true. Their theology is perfectly designed to give them the space that they're in now if you come across a spoiled child don't be mad at the child talk to the parents and their spiritual parents did not raise them very well and I can't blame them for that but now we've got to do something together because the future of our church depends on that I just want them to be in a healthy place where they come in and they leave with their mouth open because they've seen Jesus. That's all I want for them. I don't have a, I don't have a political objective here. I just want them to know him. Yeah. Tom, thank you. We thank Tom for doing that. That, was, that takes a lot. I'm going to do one more. Anybody else? See, that, that was relatively painless, right? <laughs> Except for the fact that everybody's going to tweet him. Okay. Is there, can I get, uh, is there any, would there be a woman 
Would you please come? I'm only saying this just because we've had two guys up here in a moment. I'd love to get another perspective. I think it's always really, really important. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're welcome. I'm slow to get there, but, I'm, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I'm really trying. Here, come, please come, come join me. Uh, tell me your name. I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Sarah, where are you from? I'm from Rocky Mount, Virginia. You are? Okay. Yeah. So, Sarah, when you heard this, what was the first thing that, I mean, go meta for me. Don't go to the content. Go to the experience. What was it like to listen to all of this and think about it in terms of your church and the formation of your church? I think it feels heavy. Okay. Um, and weighty. Yeah. And challenging. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, what immediately did you start thinking about, about your church, about its shared culture, experiences, practices? What came to mind first? what discipleship looks like currently mm -hmm. and then what we would hope it would look like. So I wonder sometimes about people's even desire to engage. Yeah. And so what we have seen is a gradual decrease of participation and even spiritual hunger. Yeah. Well, I want to point out something you just did. I don't know if you did it on purpose. She said the phrase, I wonder. We teach our cohorts to keep saying, instead of, sometimes we say, I think, a lot of times we go, I wonder. It's an open posture of exploring. And notice how you could do it without as much defensiveness. I wonder where our people are. I love that you did that. Okay, awesome. Tell me a bit more. What else would you want to tell me about the practices, the culture of your church that, would, that would, you would know you'd need to address in order to kind of create this different culture of discipleship? I thought, I've thought a lot about um, what it means to be intentional in small ways, mm -hmm. which is maybe to start with two or three. Mm -hmm. And then in the same way Jesus does his three, yeah. and then the 12, yeah. and then a larger group. Yeah. Um, Just start discipleship yourself in kind of a new way with a group, small group of people. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, so let me ask you the hard question. These haven't been hard. Yeah. <laughs> for, most, for most leaders, this is the hardest question. Okay. Okay? Sure. That seems like a really, really important thing to do. So what are you going to not do to give yourself time to do that? Mm. I mean, I'd love to go to less meetings. <laughs> um, you need a note? I'll write you a note. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a professor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she um, needs to go to less meetings so she can actually disciple people for Jesus. Yeah. I think maybe say no to some things yeah. that I've been doing that I don't really need to do. Yeah. yeah. But I think more, at least for me, sit with this spirit for a little while and ask where to start. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't really know. Yeah. So let me just encourage you to try this, just as an experiment. Before you find and pray for those people, pray for God to show you the space for those people. Learn how to say, learn, start with a stop doing list before you do a to-do list. Right? Because everybody says we're exhausted, and it's like we're all trying to go into uncharted territory, and we're carrying these big friggin' canoes. They're called our schedules. <laughs> and we've yeah. got to learn how to let them go in the places. There's stuff you need to do that you can't let go. But I don't believe that God's going to give you a desire to do this 
without having letting you let go of something else. It might be huge. It might be really significant. I worked with a senior pastor of a church. He literally built an entire discipleship institute, given 20 years of his life to it, and he knew he had to turn it over to someone else so that he could give to the challenge of the congregation. Mm. Could, but it could also be small. It could be, I'm going to do a few more memos and a few less meetings. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. You thank you for being with us. This is awesome. Thank you. Let me just close with this thought, okay? This thought. And this is why I loved having these folks up front. Look at real time. We didn't solve anything. We're just probing stuff together. This is what we do all the time. One of the things we've learned is if you are trying to move into uncharted territory and you're trying to go through change, if you can't name it, you can't navigate it. You've got to be able to start by getting people together and name the thing you're working on. Name the challenge, name the competing values, name the resistance, name your fears, name your sense of being overwhelmed, name your, if you can't name it, you can't navigate it. And before we start doing some stuff, let's start by undoing some things we need to let go of. Just drop some canoes so we have space to start going into uncharted territory. Thanks for letting me be here. That was fun to be with you. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we eat, play, work, and yes, even in our traditional churches. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, go to freshexpressionsus.org backslash how to start. The Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by Gannon Sims and me, Heather Delod. It's edited by Joel Limbaum, and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you've learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Now, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that God's ways may be known on earth your salvation among all nations.